Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Bulak podcast, which is coming to you not live from Rabat, Morocco. And it is a podcast about Arab and Arabic literature and the region in which it is written and read. And I am Marsha Links Quayley and I'm with Ursula Lindsay. Hello. Hi, Marsha. And we were going to start out by talking about this beautiful piece about the work of a writer who was not born Arab, <laughs> um, uh, Juan Guetisolo, uh, a piece that appeared in, in Marab, written by Hashem Aidi. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> it, it was written after uh, the author's death. And we should say that Juan Guetisolo spent a lot of his life living in Morocco, uh, in both Tanger and Marrakesh, and this piece was published after the author's death, um, seemed like it was written largely after the author's death, and is a, a critical retrospective on his work. Yeah, everyone I know, like my Moroccan friends, people sent me the piece before it went online, like several months ago, mm-hmm. and, and then when it went online, people just loved this piece, and I think rightly so. It's it's a lovely... Um, it is both a tribute and a critical reevaluation that manages to be um, incisive in opening up the author's work and the flaws in it and what is as he says, not aged well about it, while also being tremendously respectful of the things that he did well and the project that he was trying to establish this sort of anti-Orientalist um, project. And, and, and it made me think again about how writers are writing to different audiences and how how what you direct at at Spain and Spanish readers and what you don't say about Morocco how if if I were writing a novel I might want to write you know four different novels for my uh, one novel for my Egyptian readers one novel for my um you know Islamophobic American readers one novel etc yeah so I have not read the work of Goitisolo I mean in in fact this essay for me was a great I think, introduction. Mm. Um, And so he left Spain, like, you know, I can't remember in what decade, but basically he was uh, anti-fascist, extremely critical of the Franco regime, and and settled in Morocco, and was also like extremely... Was first in Algiers, as I understand it, and then settled in Morocco. And and was also very critical of, um, I guess, what he saw as, like, the social conservatism of Spanish society, the sort of uh, Catholic Moors. And, mm. and so he sort of celebrated in opposition to that the, the Arab world and all these aspects of Arab culture, which he saw as actually sort of freer and more vital and... So he kind of staged a critique of Spain from North Africa, right? which, of course, there's such an interesting sort of history between Morocco and Spain in the sense that uh, 
southern Spain at one point was part of the, Mor I mean, for several centuries, Andalusia was part of basically a Moroccan empire. Right. Um, and there is like a huge cultural exchange between the two countries. And then later on, Spain occupied northern Morocco um, and, 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 and also waged some like very violent campaigns there. But IED does bring up the question of like how Goitisola was so radical, such a dissident in, within the political terms of Spain itself, but then settled in Morocco and didn't have the same criticism for a very authoritarian regime in Morocco. Right. That during the lead years, he did not speak out. Right. So there's that criticism, and then there's also the criticism of, even as he's sort of celebrating um, his... Arab settings and characters, um, he's eroticizing them, like stereotyping them. He's living in the same Orientalist binary, even as he's flipping it. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it's not just one long uh, takedown at all of his work. It, like, I mean, one, it sort of actually situates how. Aidi, as a teenager in Tangier, sort of discovering the world of letters, met people like Goitisolo and how they actually revealed parts of his literary heritage and culture to him because they were very knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he also very finely contrasts him with Paul, Paul Bowles, uh, who is an American writer living in Morocco, and who I think you could much more clearly do... Um, a, a view on how his characters were this sort of completely otherized. Um, so he, do, he, he does some comparison about the ways in which they were similar, um, and, and then also the, way, the ways in which they parted ways on their views of imperialism. Yeah, I mean, Bowles is like a whole other huge... Right. <laughs> but he similarly, I mean, Bowles had this like, you know, for example, huge interest in Moroccan music and collected it and did incredible work on that. And um, I mean, drew people to Tangier by his presence there, uh, helped other Moroccan authors publish too. Mm -hmm. I mean, but the, yeah, I mean, I... I find all of his books, I find aspects that are quite strong, and then I'm always ultimately disappointed by the... I feel like he's not good at endings. Uh. I also feel like, bizarrely, I'm actually... I, I like his Moroccan characters, who he presumably did not... Who are more distanced from him and were maybe harder to imagine, better than his, like, Western characters with their sort of boring existential ennui, who I always don't find compelling. Yeah, well, I, 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 I ultimately find it kind of give it a shrug at the end of like, yes, some American housewife who's essentially boring and then getting drawn into a web of this dark, terrible, brutal, violent, animalistic Moroccan uh, uh, reality. Yeah, the responses of the Western characters are what I don't find... Very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, we'll, we'll, that's, that's a tangent. <laughs> but they were both part of this extraordinary literary and cultural scene in Tangier that, you know, from, right. the, from the 50s. Uh, I mean, it sort of faded, has slowly faded away. Um, but at one point, it was such a, 
um, hotspot for writers of the beat generation and for jazz musicians and just it, um, a lot of people settled there and I guess Goitisolo spent what, three or four decades in Tangier. Right. Uh, or between Tangier and Marrakesh. Yeah. Yeah, it, part of, and part of the subhead of the article was about um, something Havana and treasonous. So something about... Um, the treasonous intellectual, The treasonous intellectual. And I think it's Tangier, Havana, and the treasonous intellectual. And yeah, part of what I really found so sympathetic in the, in the depiction of Goitisolo was how he said, the intellectual's job, and I'm quoting from memory, not from looking at it, the intellectual's job is to critique one's own, own, one's own country, one's own self, one's own background and to be sympathetic to the other. So I think, you know, that fits into his larger, he's staging a critique of Spain from from right. North Africa without staging a critique of the policies of Hassan the, the second. Yeah, although I guess I feel like when you resettle so completely in another country, at some point, I understand initially but I feel like at some point as a writer, if this is the country you live in and you've lived mm. in for decades, I don't understand how you don't begin to also engage with it. Right. I, I yeah, mean, yeah. it seems to me that at some point that would happen. Like, uh, you know, I'm not super comfortable writing about places that I don't know well, you, right. you know? But yes, then the certainly. longer I live there, the more I do feel compelled, actually, to, to write about those places as well. Um but it's a lovely, I mean, it's such a, it's, it's a, it's a piece of critical writing, but also it's very generous. It really does a great job of sort of situating this writer politically, intellectually, um, of making a real effort to understand and to explain like where, what his vision was and what his beliefs were. And, um, where he stands in the history of Spanish literature and how he relates to Moroccan literature his failings in terms of gender, and yet the success of other parts of his project. Yeah, and then I also really, I thought it was beautifully written, and then I thought that Hisham Aidi places just enough of himself, like he lets you know sort of how he discovered this writer, and he, there's a few interactions with him, and there's a few descriptions about Tangier, and, you know, it's in the service of the piece. It never feels like he's sort of trying to, you know, put himself for, like, write a personal essay um, that's not required. But it just is so, it just makes it such a better piece of writing to have that bit of personal elements. And um, he's also, he also wrote, and I'll put it in the show notes, a quite nice essay for the nation about the protests in the Reef region in mm. northern Morocco, where he kind of interweaves his family history and and uh, the the history of um, of insubordination and protest and 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 of great and 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 tragic repression in that region, and um, he is a, he's a professor at Columbia and he wrote a, also a very nice book called Rebel Music, that um, I'll link to the review because I like barely know how to describe it, but it sort of weaves together um, stories about all sorts of um, cultural cross-pollinations and intersections between North African culture and other parts of the world. One thing I'd also say about this review is that when I reached the end of it, I wouldn't say that there was a surprise ending, but there was a sort of epiphany en ending 
where I felt that he'd suddenly brought different elements together in a way that made me see the whole, see Juan Gutisolo afresh, even that, that pieces earlier in the, in the review hadn't. And that it was um, short story-like in that way. And that uh, both his measured and real and serious criticism and how he assembled the piece to, to come to this enlightenment at the end was really beautifully done. Yeah, it's just a great piece of writing. It's uh, it's 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 lo it's lovely, and um, which sort of connects to the other thing we were going to talk about today, which is the art of reviewing itself. Yes, which we both practice now and again. Probably me more often, although you know, so you know, some some reviews that one writes are not as long assembled as others. Th this is a much. This is a. What Hashem does is an entire view of an author's career and where he situates inside a tradition. Oh, I suspect it's actually, I think he told me, I think it's actually part of like a book he's writing oh. or something. Um, I can't remember the exact details and I should, but I think it's part of a, of a larger project of um, a history of Tangier maybe mm. and glitter and cultural life there. Yeah. I mean, it's great to have that kind of time and then right. but then sometimes it's great to just sort of have a strong immediate reaction to a text and kind of pour it pour it out right and, and there is there's been some uh criticism of criticism of late um i came at it through rafia zakaria's uh piece in the baffler which was something in praise of negative reviews, or I can't remember what the title was. That's exactly oh, it. Okay. And oh, you have a good memory. You have a good memory for titles and people, much better than me, actually. And, well, I felt a little bit um, awkward about it because I recently did review a book of hers, um, Veil, which I, I um, was quite moved by, so... So, so, so you, I gave you, you, fa you failed to give her I the negative reviews that she's that calling she, for. That she clearly wanted. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So I, 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 I read this too, and um, it's a, it's a nicely argued. I mean, it starts from the basic observation, which is something that people have been making for quite some time, which is that there are very few negative reviews, and that that's not the general trend in reviews. That for the most part, uh, they are are either positive or non-committal. Right, and occasionally, well, often over-gushy about books and not looking at the critical and um, political context of them, not opening up discussions on often, you know, a book's um, flaws or misogyny or um, political stances, but rather being kind of descriptive in a bland way. Yeah, and I mean, so the the piece by Zakaria links to two other pieces. One is Elizabeth Hardwick's 1959 piece in Harper's, which is uh, all called, I think, The Decline of Book Reviewing, which is an amazing negative review of everybody else's re review mm. sections, where she just tears to pieces. Um, but in a very well-argued way, the book sections of like most major newspapers as being... Um, bland and descriptive and where she sort of argues for that the purpose of the review should be that the reviewer themselves has to be interesting which sounds basic mm. but 
that they have to, the point is for them to say interesting things. Um, it's Although not, many newspapers will ask you to background yourself and to not say interesting things and to simply be descriptive of the book and to not get in the way of it. Will they? Yes, they will. And I know you have not had this experience of having a commissioned review rejected because it was negative, but I have. And I know many other people, including uh, Rafia Zachariah, have as well. That's what she told me. Have as well, so... And does does the editor argue with you on the basis of the book? Do they say, like, I think you're being too harsh because, in fact, the book has these qualities? Or do they just say the overall tone, like, you need to tone it down? I've been told there's a limited space for book reviews. Uh, we want to spend our time talking about books that people loved. Full stop. There is no room for negative reviewing. There's no room for negative and reviews. And I, I wanted to say before I forget that there has been such a tonal shift. And one of, so one of the things that she talks about is this sort of condescending review. Well, she, okay, go ahead and talk about the second piece first. Well, so should I, should I read a quote from, from Zacharias? Yes. Which is in response to... Um, it's in response to a piece that sort of called for reviewers... Um, not to be too negative, not to speculate about the biography of the writer and sort of connect elements of it to the text. Um, and it, suggesting that there's sort of this dichotomy of older white male reviewer versus the younger female marginalized Right, so maybe we should go to the source. Maybe we should go to what Zachariah is responding to in okay. the first place, which is this piece on the Los Angeles Review of Books called Readerly Privilege and Textual Violence, an Ethics of Engagement, which the title already... Right, it lays out for you what's going to happen in the piece. Well, it's just also <laughs> like, it's, it's the title of a, I don't know, an academic article. But anyway, and by a poet called Christina Marie Darling, and... In it, there's sort of an interweaving of sort of negative, condescending interactions this poet has had with what she describes as like privileged older male, not necessarily reviewers. I mean, there are people giving feedback on her work, but it's not in the context of a published review. Right. And Which is quite different. Yeah, I think there's a problem between sort of conflating, conflating these two things. Absolutely. Your, your negative experience was like condescending, you know, guys who don't give your work credit or, you know, praise it in private but not in public. Those are negative experiences that one can have probably throughout the literary field. Um, but to then conflate that with the privilege of the reviewer. And so she sort of says that reviewers have this responsibility to help readers find the books that are a good fit for them. She suggests in the end that we are like ushers uh, sending people to the empty chairs in the hall. Yeah, I think I'm going to find this. Reviewers are not arbiters of taste, but rather they are ushers in a room full of empty chairs. I can only hope they will show us the way. So the argument I is... I have nothing against ushers, I would say, but... That's just not how I see my role. I also think when you completely take out the idea of taste from a review, I'm not sure. But, but so it's hard to say what's left, actually. What am I leading you towards in this, in this hole of empty chairs? Right. So, I mean, her argument is that you have to be very, very careful with your sort of the, the privilege that the reviewer supposedly has vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the writer, and particularly writers who 
um, are new sort of young, new young marginalized. female, marginalized right. for 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 whatever reason, um, and. Her description of the sort of role of the review doesn't actually leave any place for a negative review because at the most you can explain the reasons why this particular book might not work for some readers. Yes, it suggests that that's what that's you could say. That's why this in a sort of consumer oriented this soap may not be good for some skin types. Right, right, and and so this is what. Um, this is what Zechariah is responding to, and then. Saying, you know, uh, this is a clever. It is a clever slate of hands, stemming in part from the predilection towards taking offense on behalf of marginalized others, while simultaneously suggesting that a lowering of standards, or in this case, a deliberate abridgment of the negative review, is what is required to correct the inequities of underrepresentation and misinterpretation. This is simply not true. For those who belong to these marginalized categories, and I speak as someone who does, critical and informed engagement with their work, along with dialectical challenges to it, is a sign of equality or inclusion. The idea that all Native American or Muslim American women must be praised for the very fact of publishing a book smacks of the worst sorts of condescension. The idea that their public position must receive gentle pats ensures their intellectual exclusion. Yes. And in this context, I wanted to talk about what I see. And I, I would like to actually look at this in a more systematic way. But what seems to me uh, to be the very startling shift in how Arabic books and translation have been reviewed in the English language press, particularly I'm talking about a shift from the 80s to, to now. And there's the famous review by John Updike of Abdurrahman Munaf's uh, Cities of Salt, the first book in the quintet, that he is insufficiently westernized to produce anything that we might consider a novel. That these are campfire stories. I, I've read uh, this review enough times that I'm fairly certain that I'm quoting it correctly. Um, but this is not the only one. Um, so I, I thought he's got his own bag of thing uh, that he's carrying with him when he's reviewing. Uh, I, uh, the reviews that I read of Ibrahim Akuni's um, Bleeding of the Stone, very negative, which struck me because it's a novel that I loved. Me too. Uh, then I was reading uh, a few days ago, uh, another Akirkus review from the 1980s. And then I went and re read other reviews of uh, Sebri Musa's uh, Seeds of Corruption because uh, Mahmoud Hosni wanted to write a revisiting of the novel for Arab Lit, so I thought, let me see what the English language reviews were. And they were very harsh and condescending. And there was no there was no space for anything positive. Those Arabs and their their terrible, um, immature books. And then I read uh, you know it it you know it gives you sort of a nest of links at the bottom. So I went read some other reviews from the 1980s, slagging off like a, 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 <laughs> a luminaries of Arabic literature, basically. Yes, exactly. And so that's the way it was. Exactly. So that's the way it was, and um, and I feel that from that position, they were really not trying to get into understanding the tradition and what what people were belonging to, and maybe some of these translate translations are terrible. I would need to look back at that. But to today, um, where reviews tend to be 
extremely over-the-top kind and or uh, bland, non-committal, descriptive, to the point where, uh, for instance, uh, someone emailed me saying, I, I didn't like uh, Frankenstein in Baghdad at all. Why are, what are all these super glowing reviews about it? I don't, I don't understand, am I insane? To the point where I think the, the review has, the reviewer feels uh, that they must be positive about, about these books in, in this set, you know, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a white person in a position of privilege. Uh, uh, I'm just imagining my way into the reviewer's head, but, uh, but even the Kirkus reviews of Ibrahim Akoni, um, Bleeding of the Stone, to the Kirkus reviews more recently, like of the new Wow, show a completely different tone and a different um, uh, sort of, wow, this is a great Libyan author that we, we've heard of now and he's writing about these Sufi themes. And whereas before it was like, my God, what is this uh, corny Sufi stuff? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you're saying, and I think it's true, so like the, the Western reviewer... Um, kind of wants to be encouraging to yes, their murders. Yes, exactly, exactly. But, but, and yet this is also a problem across all book reviews, right? Like there's a general trend to not publish negative reviews. Yes. And then there's a particular trend to sort of, I think what it is also is like, if you're going to write about a book from another part of the world, which is already sort of harder to do to sell that you know, review. Then on top of that, the, the editors are not going to be interested in... A negative review of that book because if they're writing about it at all they want it to say something and since the readers are unfamiliar with that writer in the first place usually you only the only time you get a chance to write a negative review is if it's somebody who's already quite famous and right. then you're sort of going against the grain of what's right been said about you know, sort, of, sort of the critical consensus but i could write an inter an interesting negative review that would be more fun to read than a bland positive review. I also think even the term negative, like in a sense, what we're talking about are critical reviews. Yes. I mean, I generally, so I don't know what your policy, my, my policy, generally speaking, is to, I guess, if I write about a book, there has to be enough there in the book, even if I didn't like it, but there's sort of like, there's enough substance and style and efforts and sort of interest that it has made me want to say something about mm. it, right? So like terrible books, I don't bother with, you know, just like... Yes, of course not. Um, and so you can sort of assume that those aren't there. And then I guess I have a general tendency to not... A general policy of like the first book by a young author, I am more cautious. I think it is it is natural to sort of like both be a little a little kind and also to think like, well, this person is starting off. People generally improve. Like it's mm. rare to have a perfect first book. Sure. So so I have I guess those two, but I don't I don't know. I don't think I hesitate to write. Um, critical reviews certainly and I can think of a few that I've been engaged in I agonize over it a bit I do think I definitely about agonize over it and I definitely am aware of the enemies that I have created over the past 
uh, Don't you eight just years. Have, you have one and one. I have people who probably are disappointed in me and didn't like their... No, I probably have two. <laughs> two people who I've created as enemies. Um, I, I don't have any animosity towards them. They're it, just mad at you. They're mad at me. Um, uh, and I wish that I could write a novel so that they could write something terrible <laughs> so that we would be all even. So you'd be even. Yeah. But well, I, I did, these are not, let's, let's say these are not um, the sort of stinging, I wrote a, a, you know, a complete takedown of this novel. They are, uh, here are um, some, some things that I think worked very well about this novelist's book. And then here are ways in which I think she's constructing Sudan as primitive and um, Sudan as primitive and animalistic, and Cairo as cultured and um, forward-looking. That I believe that that is part of the context of the book and was important to discuss. Also, I mean, I don't, of course, I don't have experience being reviewed. I have a lot of experience having my work uh, taken apart before publication, mm. and I think you know, like major, major painful rewrites. Uh, and and also, of course, publishing articles and essays and getting sort of feedback online. Yes. And I think part of writing, like, of course, one is, I'm not saying you, you, you can just choose not to be sensitive to these things, but part of writing has to be accepting that some people won't like it, that you will get negative responses. Like, you can't expect sort of support and encouragement. I don't think that's... that's I will you say, should, one I mean, author, <laughs> Selma Debach, pa Palestinian-British author, thanked me for my, my <laughs> the negative part of my review and said she wished she'd read it before she published. So, yeah. very occasionally, one feels like, hey... I had an author. I'm not so bad. I had an author who's also a friend send me a book, and I decided not to review it, and I wasn't sure what to say about it. And then, I mean, I felt it had strong points and not, but probably if I'd written a review, it would have been more a review that would have been sort of more of a critical engagement with the book. And I, uh, and in the way one does with people you know personally and you like, I sort of hesitated to give uh, even sort of feedback. And then I ran into him and he said, like, what did you think? And I wrote him. And it, it was a nice conversation. It was a nice back and forth. I think it's not ever easy for the writer, but... Um, I don't find it... E I mean, and I don't have anything as personal feeling as a novel out there, but... Right. Yeah, I mean, I think also there's sort of there's a, there's a separate issue. If the issue is that certain that sort of book reviewing is overwhelmingly dominated by white men, mm -hmm. which I think is I think there's more and more women book reviewers. Um, I'm not sure. I think probably like everything else, it's dominated by white people. The publishing industry is. Right. Um, but for me, the solution to whatever sort of systemic blind spots are created by that is simply for more diverse cadre of reviewers. It is not to insist that all reviews sort of soft pedal, right? It's just that if the reviewers themselves were a more diverse bunch, then you wouldn't sort of have the kind of structural maybe... Um, well, I, I think gaps that ultimately that could be a soft pedal review is just as much a disservice as an overly harsh 
a misinformed review. Yeah, and also, I mean, this idea that sort of, oh, you shouldn't connect the person's, you shouldn't engage with the person's biography, you should only engage with the text. Like, the text it contains references, of course, to people's biography, and so that this whole Goitisolo piece would make, like, no sense. Like, you're not supposed to situate the author mm. uh, or his work. Um, it, how, why in the world? I think what the 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 writer's actually calling for is you're not supposed to say anything, make any negative inferences from the biography, but you're free to make positive <laughs> ones. And no, I think you engage both with the writer's biography sometimes in a review. And also I think you, you do bring yourself into it. Like you bring your point of view. My, my favorite reviews are probably like movie reviews, Anthony Lane and the New Yorker. Mm. Where it's like, I don't even, I've never even watched those movies. It's just how he writes about movies that I adore. Right. Or like book reviews, probably the LRB, where again, like every writer brings so much of their own taste and erudition and life experience and to the book review, you don't even know where they're going to go sometimes with Mm. the book. Like the book is a jumping off point for an essay. Right. And I love that format. I, I mean... And you take the book seriously. I mean, you take the book seriously as that jumping off point. Like, you expect a lot from it, right? Right. You take your reactions to it seriously. Like, you're passionate about the book. I think that's what makes a good review. Yes. Passionate, positively passionate, negatively passionate, negatively and positively. Yeah. I I think, yeah, a lot of what what, um, she's criticizing is not even necessarily the overly positive review, which, of course, is not a good thing, but also the review that removes the reviewer entirely and becomes just sort of a eighth grade plot summary. Book report, exactly. Like, I never wanted to be an eighth grade teacher and read anyone else's book reports. Yeah. I don't want to read them now either. And I, I mean, I think it's hard to, to write. It's easier to write a book report than to write a book review, obviously. It's, it's easy a, to write a book report. It's, it's just a, a summary. <laughs> it's a lot harder to sort of put yourself out there and try to describe your reactions and, and try to relate the book to other things and sort of assume the responsibility of your, vo- your voice. I mean... Because you can be wrong. I I can't really be wrong in a book report. If I'm just telling you what happened in the book, there's really nothing to criticize in what what I've done. It's a much more bold stance to say, here is my position in regard to this book. Right. And like, for example, the LRB review is like, I'm not always at all convinced by the reviewer. I'm, I'm completely interested in reading it. I remember years ago now, somebody had this, like, long negative review of Alice Munro. Mm. I love Alice Munro. I was like, you are wrong, sir. (laughs) But I enjoyed reading it and Mm. sort of arguing in my head about, with the reviewer, about what I thought he'd missed about her and, you know, what I thought was, I mean, but at least it was, it was well enough argued that there was, it starts a conversation in your head. Right. With the book and with the reviewer. Um, And... Yeah, it's just, I, I don't think your responsibility is matchmaker between books and readers. I think your responsibility is to the overall literary conversation, pretentious as that may sound. But right. I mean, I have read petty negative takedowns of 
other people in your field and you, you're a poet and you're taking down another poet that reads as sort of a jealous screed on why somebody should prefer your poems instead. And I'm, you know, I'm not suggesting that this is a better mode of reviewing. No, no. I mean, and, and, or, I, yeah, the kind of pieces that are sort of unfair or invidious or, um, you know, go after a writer not on the basis at all of their work, but mm. sort of completely privilege some supposedly problematic aspect of their, like, identity or politics or something like that. No, I mean, I'm, I, I don't think that's right. Um, They're also bad, bad reviews. Yes, yes. So, so, no, it's not, nobody's talking about, like, for the sake of it, do you write a bad review. Now that I think of it, at the very, very beginning when I was writing, I wrote a, a very, I, I read this book. It was a French book um, that had won an award. It was set in Alexandria. I think it was called The Alexandrians. This would have been a long time ago, like 2003. Mm. And it was for, like, a new um, literary supplement that didn't last very long of a regional newspaper. Uh, and I and I wrote this like scathing review, the kind that you write when you're 24 and mm. you have lots of opinions and like zero tolerance. You know mm. what I mean? Like before it's even occurred to you how much work it is to write a novel, and and the editor was he they ran it, but he did give me a little pushback. He was like, "This won a major award. Like, are you sure it's complete garbage?" <laughs> And I do think there's a balance. I mean, I have over time become much more aware of... So even in a book I don't like, I do look at the things that worked mm. or the things that were attempted. Right, what the book itself was trying to accomplish. Yeah, and um, but then you you can err on the side of doing that so much that you really do pull your punches. I think because it's hard. It's actually hard to be... Harsh. Absolutely. No, there, there's a book that I started to read recently that I thought was just awful in all kinds of ways that would be interesting to discuss. And the person is not, you know, less privileged than me. And they are a, a wealthy white woman writing a book about Egypt. And yeah, ultimately, I just, uh, yeah, it was, it, I decided not to do it. Well, also sometimes, because it is such an effort to really engage with the book, is an, is you're paying an honor to the book, frankly, yes, in writing. True. And so there are books that don't deserve it, like, yeah. that are really don't deserve Ulti it. Ultimately, I decided this was not how I wanted to spend my time and energy. Yeah. And, so, and the whole question of, like, does the reviewer have a lot of power or privilege, I guess sometimes I guess there's going to be a dynamic if especially if the reviewer is like an older more established writer which I guess that happens often that writers are called upon to review mm. other writers um and in the sense that when you're a young writer and it's your first book I think it's always going to feel like these people are gate gatekeepers of the literary establishment but they're not reviewers are not gatekeepers <laughs> of anything I mean I don't feel very powerful but I suppose one has some um, just just by just by having a, the opportunity to comment in certain venues. But I think I'm not sure I've ever stopped anyone from being heard. Yeah, I think <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, that that question of sort of how influential the review is at all 
um, to the overall certainly sales of the book like I'm not sure uh, I mean Elizabeth Hardick was already arguing that like 50 years ago that basically it makes absolutely no difference what the New York Times book section says right to... I think there have been actual studies of this yeah. if you get a glowing review in the New York Times how much do sales go up none one person yeah yeah I mean it but it matters of course it matters to you like the the, yes. re- the reception yeah. does matter um and uh so I've recently been writing a, a sort of longish essay that is was partly was initially triggered by a response to a book, and it is someone's first book, uh, and I but it's published by a sort of big publishing house and got a very positive overall reception. So I feel like I'm not you know, damaging mm-hmm. the person, and it came out a while ago. And uh, I have kind of gone back and forward about how harsh to be. Like, what the person's trying to do, I think, uh, is interesting, and it's sort of a memoir essay. Uh, and I'm not being cagey, but I feel like I should wait till it's published <laughs> to, like, reference it. But but for me, what sort of got me going, what, like, fired me up to write about it, were the things about it that really bugged me. Right. Like, I, that's just what I felt strongly about. Um, and But then in the writing it, I sort of keep, I really keep going back and forward about, like, sort of how far to go. Like, I feel like I'll say things in conversation about a book, and then when you get down to put them on paper, you sort of start to, because I do feel very responsible and, like, I don't know. I I overthink, like being sure that once this is out there in the world, this is something that I'm gonna, you know, be be ready to like. Because you do carry these around committed. with you forever. Yeah, yeah. But then actually, like reading the the Zachariah piece, I, I I felt sort of like reassured about like, you know, I've spent so much time with this person's book and thinking about it and writing about it. That's actually a compliment. Like even if I'm not crazy about it, it was I, worth your time. Yeah, and I feel like between the book and my review of it, there's sort of a a conversation maybe that other people will have and or will join in on. And uh, I, uh, it was sort of a nice reminder to me that there's nothing bad uh, or mean about uh, a, about being openly critical of a of a of a work. Right, even if it feels mean sometimes. And sometimes the author will read it as mean. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, of course, a lot comes down to how you couch it. But then sometimes to, like, produce a good piece of writing and be honest, you do just have to say, like, this book made me roll my eyes, or, like, it really annoyed me, and here's why. Sort of tiptoeing around it. Yes. I feel like a lot of reviewers now, when they do want to say something negative, they they do, but they're really kind of coy about it. Right, right. They just infer it gradually through the whole piece. Right. But they don't just come right out and say that This book was misogynist. Right, Mm -hmm. right. I mean, partly, okay, so you want to demonstrate your point, sort of show, not tell. Right. But Although Hisham Aidi, he demonstrates his point when he mm. is talking about the sort of phallocentrism of Juan Guttasolo's work. And then he does, he does come out and say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's never much loss by coming out and saying it. Even though it can feel uncomfortable. Yeah, but that's your responsibility. That's your job, yes. yeah. I think. And... Uh, 
And there's another example of this, right? We, you were mentioning to me um, that there's a book on the list, the short list for the yes. IPAF. So it, very recently, uh, on last Wednesday, the short list for the International Prize for Arabic Fiction, which is popularly known as the Arabic Booker, came out. And that is a six-novel short list that comes from the long list of 16 every year. And this is the most talked about literary award, however people feel about it, which people tend to feel pretty passionate about it. And there's a lot of negative feeling about it. <laughs> Murid Barhuti, for example, who was a previous judge of this award, he, <laughs> he tweeted at me one word in response to something I tweeted about the shortlist, uh, all caps, SAD. So he did not elaborate on that further. So, I mean, this is because this award is sort of the best known that comes with the most money or it one is of... absolutely not because it comes with the most money. There are all sorts of awards that come with more money. The Qatar Prize in Qatar comes with more money. Um, there are several Saudi awards that come with more money, although whether people actually get paid is somewhat of a murky area. But they so are promised a million dollars or whatever it is. Oh, God. So it's just the most prestigious. It is the most prestigious in uncomfortable part because it's associated with the Booker Foundation, which is a Western prize. And so it has the prestige of um, a stamp of approval from the Booker Foundation. It's also been around the longest, like right? Like nope. it was one of the original ones? Uh, no. It's, only, really? it's been around 11 years, which is... Old, but it's not as been around as long as the Sawiris Prize or the Oase Prize. And the Nagim Mahfouz Prize is older. It is this... They, they also have far more savvy PR than the other prizes. Yeah, it has a profile. I just feel like it has a profile that none of the other ones do. And then the books always they do much get translated more, into English. Yes. And They're also more transparent. We know who their judges are. Um, they, they stage it much better. You know, they have a long list, a judge reveal. They have, they post interviews with the authors on the website. Uh, yes, many of the works get translated, which is, it, it definitely has affected Arabic literature and translation more than any other thing since maybe the establishment of, uh, affected across multiple languages more than any other thing. Yeah, I mean, I, f I feel like the, when the shortlist comes out, what's interesting is it attracts attention for possible translation. I mean, the, and the books that are translated are often reviewed, but it also boosts the sales in Arabic of the books that make the shortlist. It, like, it has been a tremendous vehicle for having a shared conversation, which I think is one of the most interesting aspects of it, that you can find these books across the region, whereas otherwise... The books that are talked about in Egypt are totally different from the books that are talked about in Morocco, which are totally different from the books that are discussed in Kuwait. And obviously, every country still has a very specific literary culture. The sort of young woman lit of the Emirates, I don't think, would get a very sympathetic read here in Morocco. But, um, but it does create a shared conversation across the region, which is different from the functionality of other prizes. And so, but this shared conversation uh, increasingly includes criticism of the selection. Yes, I, uh, I can't, I mean, maybe now <laughs> it, there is certainly no shortage of negative reviews in Arabic. <laughs> there is no soft peddling, no 
Maybe, you know, somebody is not going to negatively review their friend's work, but there are a lot of negative reviews of books in the Arabic press. And certainly there is, uh, I cannot think of a, of a yay, we like the um, International Prize for Arabic Fiction shortlist uh, piece that I read. Well, it's easier to find something to get critical of, I think, than to say we like the whole shortlist. Like, it's a more natural response to sort of pick out the things on the shortlist that you're not crazy about, or the authors that you think got missed. Um, So, but there's one book in particular that has... Yes, uh, most of the criticism that has talked about a specific text has been about um, The Baghdad Clock by Shahid Rawi. She's one of two debut novelists on the shortlist. Some people have talked sort of generically about you see the same faces on the list year after year, which is a criticism that I would also make, and I think it's also a structural problem with the award in that they encourage, they they allow you a freebie of any writer who's previously been shortlisted. So you do tend to see the same faces. Um, And then there is a big productive, I think, debate also about what sort of book is a prize-winning book. Should it be... Um, an exciting story, well told? Um, should it be uh, something that, you, that triggers emotions or should it be some beautiful prose? What, what is an award-winning book? And the prize clearly changes its position on what that means from year to year. And so this particular book, The Baghdad Clock, um, triggered some and unfortunately, uh, Hassan Balazim, who's also an Iraqi writer, he had a commentary on it that he, when I went back, his Facebook page has either been temporarily suspended or temporarily deleted or something. I don't know, but it seems to have disappeared. Um, but for instance, in the comments on Arab Lit, the first comment about the shortlist was uh, by somebody who did not leave their name, uh, I thought putting Shahad Rawi on the long list was a hilariously bizarre joke. Now I really don't know what to say, except that any credibility the IPAF might have had just went headfirst down the drain. So this is um, a person who feels... There were many other comments subsequently, also by a a woman who identified herself only as Nada, uh, who responded, the existence of the Baghdad clock on the shortlist has given the prize a high credibility as it offers modern literature as well as the traditional methods of Arabic narrative. And I would say generally that like Ahla Mustaghnami, um, the fans of Shahar Rawi seem to be young women. And, and it is sort of a romance novel for the most... It's a sort of a pastiche, magical, realisty, romancy novel set between 1991 and the present of, of two friends and their sort of their romantic adventures while Baghdad is falling apart. Um, and then <laughs> there's a man who comes in in this sort of funny wish fulfillment from the future and tells them what's going to happen and tells them, you all got to get out of here. And in in the telling people, so a guy comes from the future of Iraq back to 1991 one or two or something, the early 90s, and tells people, things are going to go to shit. Uh, the ship underneath you is sinking. And it's, it's not a sort of a collectivist, oh my gosh, what can we do to change the future? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go kill Hitler. You know, it's not a, um, there's no vision of what is happening. There's no sort of broad understanding 
uh, of what's going on. It's everybody get out of here as fast as you can. Wait, I, wait, I don't understand. Take all your stuff. Everybody get out of Iraq? Yes, exactly. That's the solution? That's the solution is this pick up your stuff like and go. This sounds like a hot mess. <laughs> pick <laughs> up your stuff. The, the other thing is... Um, well, there are, there are a lot of they. Does it end with everybody leaving Iraq in 1992? Uh, well, no. We, I mean, there's something interesting in the way people react to this. So, some of the characters are like, "What do you mean, leave everything?" Or characters are told, "Your husband, you marry this guy. Um, he's great for you. He's a wonderful man. You have a kid, and then he's killed." and um, you have no future together. And so the woman is like, do I really marry this guy who I'm in love with now, knowing that this is gonna happen? So there is something interesting. And the, the first section of it, where it's told from a childish child's eyes, has this kind of wonderful, naive, um, YAE coming of age tone to it. So that, I think there are charming things. I didn't put it down at any point. Oh, I, I flipped fast at, at a certain point, but. But it was definitely readable. Readability. <laughs> okay, but I want the to... highest virtue. <laughs> okay, but I want to. So okay, there's but... there's one part. So there's some weird gushy thing about Gabriel Garcia Marquez and, and oh no and uh, Hassan Blasim. You've just prejudiced me against this book. Hassan Blasim's criticism was something. See now, I, I'm so sad that I couldn't go back to it, but. Something about, we don't need magical realism. What we have in the Iraqi novel is nightmare realism. And I found, so I wish I could really be quoting him instead of just I don't. I don't know about remember. insisting that the Iraqi novel, because that has to well, basically see, be the kind of I'm novel he writes. Probably, I'm probably misquoting him. Um, but and I don't have anything against Marquez, but like second, third iteration Marquez, like Yeah, like and it was, it was just, a lot of it. She gave it to this friend and this friend the novel was too hard like oh, I didn't need to know that <laughs> but so there's one point so that's the first fortune teller uh, the guy who tells them you guys are all gonna die get uh -huh. out of here pick up your dog and get out of here and then the second fortune teller she says the narrator asks well what if there hadn't been a war what would have happened in Iraq which is also a sort of a mental exercise and this fortune teller tells her essentially that the problem is Iraq not only Iraq but that modern civilizations are found in cold places and bright light deprives the soul of depth and that uh, basically you can't make a sophisticated culture in a warm place. Which, at that point, I was like, Ma? <laughs> uh, I mean, it was not an eye-rolling moment. It was more like a, uh, what? Um, so are you reviewing this book? I really haven't decided yet, but I am certainly interested in... Whether people soft pedal around the book's many issues because they because she is um, a, a young Iraqi debut novelist in translation for the first time there have been almost no um, Dunya's book is the only other one that comes to mind post two thousand three Hadia Hussein pre two thousand three Iraqi women's novels in translation are mm. you know like hen's teeth or however the saying goes. Right. I know. I mean, it's a prime candidate for exactly sort of the kind of treatment we were discussing earlier. I mean, I haven't read it, but it sounds like it is a surprise that it is, in fact, on the, on the short list. It does not have that literary quality. It's not uh, one of the best five books written in the region in the last year. 
I would I would not have put it on the list. I I, I was somewhat startled by the um, by the passion of the anger about its uh, shortlisting and longlisting, right. um, particularly because I think there are some particularly because I think there are some books by men that were also I wouldn't have put on there. And so why does this book by a young woman author deserve uh, so much passionate anger? Oh, I think we know why. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, so there was a certain... Because, because I wanted to defend it. And yeah. then I read it and I was like, oh. No, but I mean, of course it's going to be a, a book uh, by a young female writer who people are going to feel the most free, like deserved or not, to give a hard time to. And you have told me in the, that you have received... Com com that male writers have felt comfortable saying to you, like, why are there three women on the long list this right, year? That's right. insane. Right, that there's a quota system. Because there's too many the, women, three of the, 16. That Ugh. could be the only possible explanation for, like, a few... for women making up a third of the list. Right. Right. So, I mean, you know, and, and, and young writers, too. But, yeah, it's an interesting example. I mean, frankly, now, I don't, I don't think I'm probably going to read this book. No, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's an interesting, particularly as it was a, a bestseller, there are, it has a lot of fans. I think it fits into a similar dynamic as Ahlem Mustaghnami, the lovers and haters of her work. And I am a disliker of her work. She's Algerian? She's Algerian. Um, and she has many romantic nationalist books. Um, not Algerian nationalist, sort of Arab, pan-Arab mm. nationalist. And books. sort of like women, women, w woman blooming into her sexuality kind of books. Is it that genre too? Like discovering your sexual freedom? Or am I mixing her up with someone else? Um... I wouldn't call it discovering your oh, sexual no. freedom. I mean, I would say that there's something essentially anti-feminist about okay. uh, her work. And, and this, I thought, you know, this book, it, it was such a pastiche that I thought there were some, like, keenly observed moments about human relationships and uh, the desire for marriage versus what it might bring. And then suddenly some super syrupy Hallmark Cardi kind of anti-feminist romance in there. So I felt like there was some kitchen sinkism that I couldn't reconcile. Mm. And there's a very high likelihood that this book will be written about exactly as a kind of entry point for general observations about like Iraq, young Iraqis, Iraqi women, which I think there's actually a place for those sort of pieces, but I think it's actually a form of journalism, not of book reviewing. Mm. Like I, as a journalist, find it very useful sometimes to, I think it's, I think it's a valid thing to sort of like discuss what books people are reading and, mm. and, and to use that as much as you use sort of other social phenomenon as something to build a story about and maybe say something about something that's going on. Right. But I think it doesn't belong necessarily under book criticism, right. that type of piece. I think that, you know, there has been such a, an overprivileging of the uh, U.S. American narrative about the Iraq war that people are rightfully wanting to hear more from Iraqis. So I think there will be a temptation to... But, but this doesn't sound like it says something very incisive about the Iraq war, does it? Is it the, is it the kind of voice that can really make 
that could give an American reader the benefit of like sort of critically engaging with no, I think what you would, we did in Iraq? I think you would read it if you wanted a romance. Right. I, I, it, no, I don't think. I could not put together its, its critique of, or even what its position was. Certainly, it was anti-U.S. invasion. Well, yeah, that's a that I would <laughs> I would assume. <laughs> um, but what the Americans were doing, what effect it had on people's lives, other than let's everybody get the hell out of Dodge as fast as we can. Yeah, not that also like not that I think Iraqi fiction has any responsibility to educate the American no. reader. I mean, I don't think that's. Uh, I think that probably there is a drive to sort of for Iraqi writers to make sense of what's happened in their country in the last 15 years to sort of provide some sort of testimony and meaning to it. But I don't think they have any, you know, I wouldn't expect them necessarily to like aim their writing at Americans. You, you no, know, you know what I'm saying? Not. No, because She's earlier, her, I don't, I would not, her writing is not aimed at Americans at all. It's aimed at a very particular local audience. Um, I, I think Iraqis who left, even particularly, I think she's imagining Iraqis who left the country. She she lives in Dubai, huh. um, which is where I first saw her at the Emirates Lit Fest. And I, I think that's the, the readers who she's imagining. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting just the sort of these, these genres picking up, like whether it's sort of YA novels or romance or mm. national romances, as you call right. them, as sort of a nice coinage. Or, um, you know, I was reading about that there's this very successful series of Saudi novels that are all kind of about magic and jinn, and mm. they're sort of like... Right. Uh, there's also a new thing in Egypt, horror novels are... Right. So the people are engaging in all these genres. And again, like, because we're so, like would be so thrilled, I think, for more people to read, basically, or mm. to, for, the, for the book reading public to grow and the book market to grow, so that these, these, the success of any kind of book, you know, whether it deserves a big literary award or not, is, is right. actually a good oh, thing. Oh, absolutely. I'm delightful. I'm delighted, rather, that... You're also uh, delightful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm delighted to have this book be a bestseller. Absolutely. Just, you know, in the same way that, you know, God bless Danielle Steele and all of her readers. And we are more scornful of romance novelist, novel readers than, than we are of readers of other genres. Oh, yeah. The, like, I don't know, the, the sort of international legal thriller has, yes, like, right, right. so much more... The John Grisham novel. Yeah, so much more credibility, what I think, I think, because I haven't read either types of books in a very long time, and not that many, but I, I think they're about the same. Yes. And I just want to say that there are some lovely books on both the long list and the short list. Oh, yeah, I forgot to ask you if there were ones that you did think, were, like, you were very pleased or excited to see there. Uh, on the short list, I think The Critical Case of K. I, I'm uh, by Aziz Mohammed, who's the other debut novelist on the list. Um, I, I would be interested in seeing if that is the novel that wins. And that's a Saudi novel? It is a Saudi novel. Okay. But I guess we'll see. But I thought that there were some other... Um, I'm, I'm reading a, a novel by Talib Rafai 
was on the long list, didn't make the short list right now that I'm enjoying. So, you know, I think there are always good novels that are on the list somewhere, e even if I don't agree with one, the ones they pick for the yeah. short list or the winner. Yeah, I mean, as long as you discover things through it, that's kind of good. Yeah. All right, well, um, I guess we'll say goodbye for now. Yes, and see you again in two weeks. Yep. All right, everybody, take care. All right, bye. Bye. Dark sides and lame sides. And right. As you, get, as you approach them, you find those why wouldn't writers, and they're, they're two separate things. I mean, him being a, you know superficial or vain or petty to me bears no relation to the other truth which is that he wrote great short stories right right i mean i think if we discovered that a writer was torturing people in his basement or torturing let's say he was torturing women in his basement i might go back and look at his women characters and see what i could uh rediscover about how he wrote women characters i might why not um well, and your moral judgment versus your aesthetic judgment, I mean, that's the big question is, you know, what is the relationship between the two? Sometimes somebody really, I don't think there's a direct relationship between going to being a good person and producing good art. I just suspect I'm impressed when people are both. Mm. I'm, I think that's fantastic. <laughs> mm. I just don't know if there's a correlation and in fact sometimes what's at least intriguing is when someone who is like really messed up in all sorts of ways nonetheless produces great art or literature and you're kind of can never quite figure out how such a flawed person could you know what I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, mean yeah. I mean if somebody for instance cannot humanize people a in their in their life but somehow can in their books which is not i mean so i mean uh, well, this, although you first for instance get the uh, like john updike's some of john updike's writings like the terror the book the terrorist is so sad and pitiful and disappointing um i guess that to me is less surprising than somebody who is a horrible person in real life and then somehow can imagine on the page people in such vivid and, and surprising ways. Yeah, and a big example is, but I'm, this is definitely, like, this is not just a tangent, this is like a highway sort of side <laughs> road, but we should, we should really go down, I want to at some point, but is exactly, like, the male writing of female characters, like how so many authors who, because of the, I mean, both in the times they lived, it would just have been impossible practically for them to have, like, uh, uh, to not basically behave in misogynist ways, and then even up to this day. And yet, they seem sometimes on the page, they really push the limit of what could they, as far as they could conceivably have gone in, like, imagining the interior lives of women, and they seem genuinely invested in doing that and i mean mahfouz is an example like well if you imagine that these are variations on the writer themselves that you can only imagine a character fully if you imagine imagine your way into the character and then you imagine in life that you don't believe women are real people it, it can happen well but so maybe they don't 
I don't know if I can't say if if I can't say at all if someone like Mafuz didn't believe if women are real people, but he certainly lived like went these nadawet and these meetings and these cat talks and stuff were I think as far as I can tell from the description of them exclusively male. His social life was entirely male. His domestic life was very traditional. Um, he his seemed, articles really don't give any clue. Yeah, he, and yet his, and his writing, like, it's mostly the, most of the, a lot of the characters and a lot of the points of view are male. And yet, you know, the trilogy opens from the point of view of Amina, the mother, from this, and he, and he knows enough to exactly convey how circumscribed her point of view is. It's a great narrative choice. It's a book that's going to end up being a panorama of like decades, and and it starts from the t this really constricted point of view of a woman looking through the latticework, waiting for her completely domineering husband. Right, but with utter sympathy and and yeah. really creating her. Yeah, and 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 yet I would imagine that there were hard limits to how the kinds of female characters that he could create, but he was curious enough and talented enough that he he went right up against him. Anyway, I do think that's like another another right. conversation maybe to have. Yes, definitely. And and I think he this if you talk about how Elias Khoury uh mentioned that he created this ground this great uh ground for people to to plant their novels in. He also created women characters for those who are willing to look for them. I mean, there are many flat women characters in Egyptian writing, but but he created nuanced women characters for those who were interested in building on that as well. Hmm. All right, well, um, we'll say goodbye for today, and we'll be back in a couple weeks. All right, thank Enjoy you, Enjoy the book fair. I will. Bye. Bye. <laughs>